0: Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End. I am so glad you're here with me today as we're reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As always, I will be reading through the scriptures and asking questions along the way. These questions are meant for you to dive deeper and to come to a deeper understanding of the scriptures as God leads you. I won't be offering commentary, but I will be posing these open-ended questions so that you can really think through the scriptures for yourself. We are reading through the New Living Translation right now, and when that changes to a different translation, I will let you all know. Last time we met up, we read through the book of Ruth, and this time we're going to be starting in the next book, 1 Samuel. So in Ruth, we saw Ruth marry Boaz and find her new home and new faith in God after her husband died and she needed to find a new family redeemer is what they called it in that book. We found out that Ruth is in the genealogy of Christ. So her story was very important to us as we see the building blocks being laid for Christ's coming in the New Testament. The book of Ruth took place during the time of the Judges, which we read about in the book of Judges. And the book of 1 Samuel records the life of Samuel, who was Israel's last judge. It will also go through the decline of Saul, the first king that they had, and the choice and preparation of David, Israel's greatest and most famous king. So this is, again, part of the historical books of the Bible, as we continue on in the story of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. So in this episode, we're going to read through 1 Samuel 1 through 15, which is going to take us through the establishment of Samuel's leadership, the establishment of Saul's kingship, and part of the rejection of Saul's kingship. So let's get started with 1 Samuel 1. This starts the section called Establishment of Samuel's Leadership. And this first section is called The Birth and Dedication of Samuel. 1 Samuel 1 verse 1. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tahu, son of Zuf. Of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? Okay, so pause there. Why is Hannah so upset? Why do you think her sister would treat her this way, taunting her about the thing she's most vulnerable about. Do you think God has a purpose for Hannah? Do you think she will have a child? And do you think that child will have a great purpose in the community of Israel? The next section is Hannah's prayer for a son. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. His hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. "'Must you come here drunk?' he demanded. "'Throw away your wine!' "'Oh, no, sir,' she replied. "'I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow.' In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. Okay, so pause there. First, ask yourself this question. Why was it important that Hannah brought her trouble and her sadness to God? Do you think Hannah's prayer had any effect on whether or not she was given a son? Why do you think it was so important to Hannah that she have a son? When we have something that we desire, or something that's really important to us, or that we feel sadness about, is it important that we bring it to God in prayer? And how does God answer those prayers? Is it always with the answer that we want? Or does God sometimes remind us that he is enough? That the answer might be no, but we are sufficient in him. And then let's talk about the priest, Eli. Why do you think we had that strange interaction where he thought Hannah was drunk? Why do you think he thought she was drunk? And then when he found out she wasn't, why do you think he quickly changed his ways and gave her a kind of blessing? And then lastly, do you think it's wise to try and bargain with God? In this section, we see Hannah ask God for a son and she promises him something in return. What do we think about that? Is that a wise practice to come to God and say, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you? Okay, the next section is Samuel's birth and dedication. Verse 19. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah... The Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I ask the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, Wait until the boy is weaned, then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. "'Stay here for now, and may the Lord help you keep your promise.' So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice, and a basket of flour, and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. "'Sir, do you remember me?' Hannah asked. "'I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord.' I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshipped the Lord there. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 1. Did God answer Hannah's prayer?
1: Did Hannah hold up her end of the bargain? If you
0: were in her shoes, would you be able to hold up your end of the bargain or would it be difficult to do? Okay, now we can start first Samuel chapter 2, which is Hannah's prayer of praise. Then Hannah prayed, "My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice" Because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows what you've done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken. And those who stumbled are now strong those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. Then Elkanah returned home to Ramah without Samuel, and the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest Okay, so pause there and think about this section, this poem, this prayer of Hannah's. Why do you think she spoke these words after dedicating her son? What was the core message of Hannah's prayer? What was she trying to get across? If you had to boil it down to a thesis statement or a sentence, what was she trying to say to God and to the people around her? How would these words have affected the original audience? Hannah, the people around her, the community of Israel, what would it mean to them? And then what does this prayer mean to us today? How do we interpret it into our lives now? Okay, the next section is Eli's wicked sons. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes, the servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. He would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. The man offering the sacrifice might reply, Take as much as you want, but the fat must be burned first. Then the servant would demand, No, give it to me now, or I'll take it by force. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. Okay, so pause there. What are we learning about Eli's sons in this section? What kind of people are they?
1: What sin are they committing? What are they doing wrong? Why is this such a significant sin in God's eyes?
0: Verse 18. But Samuel, though he was only a boy served the Lord. He wore a linen garment like that of a priest. Each year, his mother made a small coat for him and brought it to him when she came with her husband for the sacrifice. Before they returned home, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you other children to take the place of this one. She gave to the Lord. And the Lord blessed Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father. For the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. Okay, so pause there. Have we learned anything new about Eli's sons? Have we gathered any more information about them? Do you think that Eli's sons know they're doing wrong? That they're sinning? Or do you think they're unaware that what they're doing is wrong? Why does it say that God was planning to put them to death? That may be a difficult thing to read, so you can really sit with that and ask yourself, why would God say something like that? Why would God plan something like that? What was going on in the situation to lead up to this? Do you think Samuel is going to have a part to play in this story? They keep planting a seed that you have Eli's sons over here doing wrong. Yet over here, you have Samuel, who's growing stronger and closer to God. So how do you think these two stories are going to intersect? And then lastly, do you see anything in this section that points toward Jesus? Maybe take a look at verse 25 and see if there's something in there that reminds us of the need for Jesus, for a Savior. The next section is a warning for Eli's family. Verse 27. One day, a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assign the sacrificial offerings to you, priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people, Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I promised that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family so it will no longer serve as my priests. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel, but no members of your family will ever live out their days. The few not cut off from serving at my altar will survive, but only so their eyes can go blind and their hearts break and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the same day. Then I will rise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family, and they will be priests to my anointed kings forever. Then all of you surviving family will bow before him, begging for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs among the priests so we will have enough to eat. Okay, so pause there. Why is God punishing Eli and his family? Do you think that the punishment is just?
1: Or do you question any of the punishment? Why was Eli
0: also held accountable when it was his sons who were the ones sinning? In this section, God says that he is going to raise up a new priest to take the place of Eli and his sons and the Levites. Who do you think that's going to be? And then eventually, after even that priest is gone, who is going to be the ultimate priest? Who is all of this pointing towards? Okay, now we can start First Samuel chapter 13, which is called, The Lord Speaks to Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now, in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the Ark of God. Suddenly, the Lord called out, Samuel. Yes, Samuel replied. What is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. So he did. Then the Lord called out again, Samuel. Again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, my son. Eli said, Go back to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time, and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, Go and lie down again, and if someone calls again, say, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. And the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, Speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever. Because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think it took Samuel so long to realize that it was God speaking to him?
1: What did it say in this section? How do you think Samuel felt in this moment?
0: Do you think that Eli knows what's coming? Do you think he knows why God is speaking to Samuel and not him? How is God following through on something he told us he would do earlier in the text? Earlier in the text, God didn't use the word or term blaspheming, but this time he says that Eli's sons were blaspheming him. What does that mean? What does blasphemy mean? And how were Eli's sons committing that sin? Why does God say that there are no sacrifices or offerings that will cover this
1: sin? And then what do you think Samuel is going to do with this information?
0: The next section is Samuel Speaks for the Lord. Verse 15. Samuel stayed in bed until morning, then got up and opened the doors of the tabernacle as usual. He was afraid to tell Eli what the Lord had said to him. But Eli called out to him, Samuel, my son. Here I am, Samuel replied. What did the Lord say to you? Tell me everything. And may God strike you and even kill you if you hide anything from me. So Samuel told Eli everything. He didn't hold anything back. It is the Lord's will, Eli replied. Let him do what he thinks best. As Samuel grew up, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable, and all Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and give messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle, and Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 3. How did Eli react to God's message? Why do you think his reaction was so calm? Why didn't he try to fight what the Lord said would happen?
1: And then for Samuel, how did Samuel stay faithful to God? Why did the people of Israel accept Samuel as a prophet?
0: It said that everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. How did that let the people of Israel know that he actually was a prophet of God? Do you remember what it said the requirements of a prophet were earlier in the Old Testament? That might help you with this answer. How do you think Samuel feels with this new responsibility? Do you think he's prepared? Do you think his closeness with God has helped him become prepared for this role? And what do you think is next for his life? What do you think is going to happen as this story continues to unfold? Okay, so now we can start First Samuel 4. And this chapter actually kind of shares a verse with the end of chapter 3 the end of chapter 3 actually starts chapter 4 so i'm going to backtrack one verse and start there to begin first samuel 4 which is called the ark in exile chapter 4 verse 1 and samuel's words went out to all the people of israel and then the next section is the philistines capture the ark at that time Israel was at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Ophic. The Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp and the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Then they said, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the son of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud, it made the ground shake. Okay, so pause there. Who are the Israelites at war with?
1: And what piece of the tabernacle are the Israelites trying to move?
0: Why do you think the Israelites reacted the way they did when they saw the Ark
1: of the Covenant of the Lord coming toward them? Verse 7. What's going on? The Philistines asked.
0: What's all the shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they were told it was because the Ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. The gods have come into their camp, they cried. This is a disaster. We've never had to face anything like this before. Help! Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They are the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. Fight as never before, Philistines! If you don't, we will become the Hebrew slaves just as they have been ours. Stand up like men and fight. Okay, so pause there. Why are the Philistines afraid? Why do you think they have this fear in the God of Israel? What do they know of God? What historical event are they alluding to here? Verse 10. So the Philistines fought desperately, and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. Thirty thousand Israelite soldiers died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. Okay, so pause there. What prophecy has just been fulfilled? Now that Eli's sons have been killed.
1: Why do you think the Philistines were able to defeat the Israelites here? The next
0: section is the death of Eli, verse 12. A man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that same day. He had torn his clothes and put dust on his head to show his grief. Eli was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the Ark of God. When the messenger arrived and told what had happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. "'What is all the noise about?' Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, "'I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day.' "'What happened, my son?' Eli demanded." Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people have been slaughtered, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed, and the Ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what had happened to the Ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge. For 40 years. Okay, so pause there. Why was Eli in such shock when he found out that the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen?
1: What is the Ark of the Covenant? What significance does it have in the community of Israel? What purpose does the Ark of the Covenant serve?
0: Do you remember any of the regulations around the Ark of the Covenant? What did God require of the Ark of the Covenant?
1: What did God use the Ark of the Covenant for? And then let's reflect on Eli, who has now
0: passed away. He was one of Israel's judges. And what kind of person was he? What purpose did he serve in Israel's community? And was he a good judge? Verse 19. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. She died in childbirth, but before she passed away, the midwives tried to encourage her, don't be afraid, they said, you have a baby boy she did not answer or pay attention to them. She named the child Ichabod, which means where is the glory? For she said, Israel's glory is gone. She named him this because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. Then she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, so pause there. What does that last little section at the end of chapter 4 tell us about the Ark of the Covenant and how the community of Israel valued that piece of the tabernacle?
1: How did losing the Ark of the Covenant affect the community of Israel? How do you think
0: the community of Israel is going to respond? Do you think they will get the Ark of the Covenant back. Okay, now we can start chapter 5. 1 Samuel 5 is called the Ark in Philistia. Chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dogen, But, when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagen had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagen and put him in his place again, but the next morning the same thing happened. Dagen had fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagen nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagen in Oshted will step on its threshold. Then the Lord's heavy hand struck the people of Oshted and the nearby villages with a plague of tumors. When the people realized what was happening, they cried out, We can't keep the ark of the God of Israel here any longer. He is against us. We will all be destroyed along with Dagen our God. So they called together the rulers of the Philistine towns and asked, What should we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? The rulers discussed it and replied, Move it to the town of Gath. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel to Gath. But when the Ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell on its men, young and old. He struck them with a plague of tumors, and there was a great panic. So they sent the Ark of God to the town of Ekron. But when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, They are bringing the ark of the God of Israel here to kill us too. The people summoned the Philistine rulers and begged them, Please send the ark of the God of Israel back to its own country, or it will kill us all. For the deadly plague from God had already begun, and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors, and the cry from the town rose to heaven. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 5. Why were the Philistines being struck with so many plagues?
1: What was God doing to the Philistines? Why did it take the
0: Philistines so long to realize what was happening and what they needed to do? When their first God fell and they started experiencing the first plague, Why do you think they moved the Ark of the Covenant to another city rather than returning it to Israel at that point? How do you think the Philistines will respond to this? Do you think they will continue moving the Ark from place to place or do you think they're actually going to return it to the Israelites? If they do return it, do you think there will be more punishment or will that be the end of the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines? Okay, First Samuel 6, this chapter is called the Philistines Return the Ark. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Ark of the Lord remained in Philistine territory seven months in all. Then the Philistines called in their priests and diviners and asked them, What should we do about the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how to return it to its own country. Send the Ark of the God of Israel back with a gift, they were told. "'Send a guilt offering so the plague will stop. "'Then, if you are healed, you will know it was his hand that caused the plague.' "'What sort of guilt offering should we send?' they asked. "'And they were told, "'Since the plague has struck both you and your five rulers, "'make five gold tumors and five gold rats, "'just like those that have ravaged your land.' Make these things to show honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps then he will stop afflicting you, your gods, and your land. Don't be stubborn and rebellious as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were. By the time God was finished with them, they were eager to let Israel go. Now build a new cart and find two cows that have just given birth to calves. Make sure the cows have never been yoked to a cart. Hitch the cows to the cart. But shut their calves away from them in a pen. Put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and beside it place a chest containing the gold rats and gold tumors you are sending as a guilt offering. Then let the cows go wherever they want. If they cross the border of our land and go to Beth Shemesh, we will know it was the Lord who brought this great disaster upon us. If they don't, we will know it was not his hand that caused the plague. It came simply by chance. Okay, so pause there. What do you think about the Philistines' plan here? Do they understand the God of Israel? Do they understand how he works or who he is? Do the Philistines recognize him as the one true God, or are they recognizing him and thinking that he is one of many gods? Do you think their plan will work? Do you think they will realize that it is God who is sending these plagues? Or do you think they will receive even further punishment? How do you think this is going to play out? Do the Philistines know anything about the rituals the Israelites go through to present guilt offerings? Is this the kind of guilt offering that God requires of the Israelites that we saw described in Leviticus. Verse 10. So these instructions were carried out. Two cows were hitched to the cart, and their newborn calves were shut up in the pen. Then the ark of the Lord and the chest containing the gold rats and gold tumors were placed on the cart. And sure enough, without veering off in other directions, the cows went straight along the road toward Beth Shemesh lowing as they went. The Philistine rulers followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they saw the ark, they were overjoyed. The cart came into the field of a man named Joshua, and stopped beside a large rock. So the people broke up the wood of the cart for a fire, and killed the cows, and sacrificed them to the Lord as a burnt offering." Several men of the tribe of Levi lifted the Ark of the Lord and the chest containing the gold rats and gold tumors from the cart and placed them on the large rock. Many sacrifices and burnt offerings were offered to the Lord that day by the people of Beth Shemesh. The five Philistine rulers watched all this and then returned to Ekron that same day. The five gold tumors sent by the Philistines as a guilt offering to the Lord were gifts from the rulers of Ashdod, Gaza. Ashkelon, Goth, and Ekron. The five gold rats represented the five Philistine towns and their surrounding villages, which were controlled by the five rulers. The large rock at Beth Shemesh, where they set the Ark of the Lord, still stands in the field of Joshua as a witness to what happened there. Okay, so pause there. Why is it significant that the cart, without veering off in other directions, Went straight along the road toward Beth Shemesh, as it says in verse 12.
1: How did the people react when they saw the ark coming over the horizon? What did Joshua and the people do as soon as the ark was returned, and what does that tell us about them?
0: The next section is, The Ark Moved to Kiriath-Jerim. Verse 19, But the Lord killed seventy men from Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark of the Lord, and the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? They cried out, Where can we send the ark from here? Okay, so pause there. Why did God kill seventy men? What sin had they committed by looking into the ark of the Lord? Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the people at kiriath Jerem and told them, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come here and get it. Okay, we will transition right in to 1 Samuel 7. And it picks up in 1 Samuel 7 verse 1. So the men of kiriath Jerem came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Eliezer, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in kiriath Jerem for a long time, 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think it says that Israel mourned because it seemed that the Lord had abandoned them? Why do you think they felt this way at this time? The next section is Samuel leads Israel to victory. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth, and they worshipped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. Okay, so pause there. Why did the Israelites have to confess their sins before the Lord? What sins were they guilty of? Why do you think it was at this moment that Samuel became Israel's judge? What does it mean to be a judge of Israel? Do you remember from the book of Judges what that entails? What goes into that role? What does this mean for Samuel? Verse 7. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, They mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below beth slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshanna. He named it Ebenezer, which means the Stone of Help, for he said, Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Okay, so pause there. Why do the Israelites have so much trouble with the Philistines? Why are the Philistines always trying to attack the Israelites?
1: How did God protect them against the Philistines in this story? What is
0: the significance of the rock that Samuel places and calls Ebenezer? Verse 13. So, the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time, and throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year, he traveled around setting up his court first at Bethel, then at Gilgal, and then at Mizpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places. Then, he would return to his home at Ramah, and he would hear cases there too, and Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 7. What was life? What was society, what was the community of Israel like during Samuel's reign as judge? Okay, so now we're transitioning into a new section of 1 Samuel, which is called Establishment of Saul's Kingship, and it starts with chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8, that is called Israel Requests a King, chapter 8, verse 1. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judge over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Okay, so pause there. Why were the Israelites upset with Samuel's sons? What were they doing? Why did the Israelites request a king rather than another judge? Why do you think that Israel's request of a king was seen by God as them rejecting
1: him as their king? Was The leader, the issue, or was the issue
0: the Israelites themselves and their personal relationships with God? Do you think that when Samuel gives them a warning, they will listen or they will still demand a king? As a personal reflection, are there areas of your life where you tend to or possibly blame
1: others, people in leadership. What can you learn in your own life, in your own reflection,
0: from this situation that the Israelites are in and how God responded to them? Is there something that that's bringing up in you about your own life and the way that you handle maybe leadership or others around
1: you instead of going to God first? The next section is Samuel warns against a kingdom.
0: Verse 10. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Okay, so pause there. What was Samuel's warning or God's warning to the people
1: about the type of king they would have? What would that king be like? How would he rule? How would he treat the Israelites?
0: Contrast the description of this king to Jesus. How are they different? Jesus is going to come in the New Testament and be the one true king, the final king, the only king. How does Jesus rule? How is he the example of what a king should be. And think on that as we read through 1 Samuel and see how this king is ruling the Israelites versus how Jesus will rule
1: and how God rules. And
0: then why do you think the Israelites agree to this? Why do you think they don't listen to Samuel's warning? Why do you think they say, give us a king anyway?
1: How do you think this is going to turn out for the Israelites? Okay, now
0: we can start First Samuel 9, and the section is called Saul Becomes an Effective King. And chapter 9 starts with a section called Samuel Anoints Saul. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, of the tribe of Benjamin. His son, Saul, was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. One day, Kish's donkey strayed away, and he told Saul, take a servant with you and go look for the donkeys. So Saul took one of the servants and traveled to the hill country of Ephraim, the land of Shalisha the Sha'alem area, and the entire land of Benjamin. But they couldn't find the donkeys anywhere. Finally, they entered the region of Zuf. And Saul said to his servant, let's go home. By now, my father will be more worried about us than about the donkeys. But the servant said, I have just thought of something. There's a man of God who lives here in this town. He is held in high honor by all the people because everything he says comes true. Let's go find him. Perhaps he can tell us which way to go. But we don't have anything to offer him, Saul replied. Even our food is gone, and we don't have a thing to give him. Well, the servant said, I have one small silver piece. We can at least offer it to the man of God and see what happens. In those days, if people wanted a message from God, they would say, Let's go and ask the seer, for prophets used to be called seers. All right, Saul agreed. Let's try it out. So they started into the town where the man of God lived. As they were climbing the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. So Saul and his servant asked, Is the seer here today? Yes, they replied. Stay right on this road. He is at the town gates. He has just arrived to take part in a public sacrifice up at the place of worship. Hurry and catch him before he goes up there to eat. The guests won't begin eating until he arrives to bless the food. So they entered the town... And as they passed through the gates, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the place of worship. Now the Lord had told Samuel the previous day, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be the leader of my people, Israel. He will rescue them from the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people in mercy and have heard their cry. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, that's the man I told you about. He will rule my people. Just then Saul approached Samuel at the gateway and asked, Can you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up to the place of worship ahead of me. We will eat together, and in the morning, I'll tell you what you want to know and send you on your way. And don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago, for they've been found. And I am here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. Saul replied, But I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and placed them at the head of the table, honoring them above the thirty special guests. Samuel then instructed the cook to bring Saul the finest cut of meat, the piece that had been set aside for the guest of honor. So the cook brought in the meat and placed it before Saul. Go ahead and eat it, Samuel said. I was saving it for you even before I invited these others. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the place of worship and returned to town, Samuel took Saul up to the roof of the house and prepared a bed for him there. At daybreak the next morning, Samuel called to Saul, Get up! It's time you were on your way. So Saul got ready, and he and Samuel left the house together. When they reached the edge of town, Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead. After the servant was gone, Samuel said, stay here, for I have received a special message for you from God. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter nine. I know I read through that entire chapter without stopping, but it was such a complete story, an introduction into Saul's story, that I thought it was good to just read the whole thing straight. And Now we can sort of ask some reflection questions about that chapter. So what did we learn about Saul, the person, in this chapter that introduces us to him?
1: Is there anything concerning yet?
0: Compare and contrast what we learn about Saul here versus what God said about the king who will lead Israel.
1: How do you think Saul is going to react when he realizes that he is going to be anointed as king?
0: How does God have his hand in this story? How has he planned and allowed these things to happen? Okay, now we can start for Samuel 10, which is called Samuel anoints Saul as king. For Samuel 10 verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. When you leave me today, you will see two men beside Rachel's tomb at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and is now worried about you. He is asking, Have you seen my son? When you get to the Oak of Tabor, you will see three men coming toward you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One will be bringing three young goats, another will have three loaves of bread, and the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They will greet you and offer you two of the loaves, which you are to accept. When you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changing into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Okay, so pause there. Why are there so many specific things that have to happen before Saul is officially anointed as king?
1: Do you think everything will happen exactly as Samuel prophesies? And then how can it be that Saul will be anointed as king
0: and yet still commit these terrible things that Samuel tells the Israelites he will do? How can he be anointed by God and still commit these terrible things? Does everyone who has a calling from God use that calling well? Does everyone who has a calling from God end up filling that role well? Or do some of us fall
1: to sin and fall to the world? The next section is Samuel's signs are fulfilled.
0: Verse 9. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart, and all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servants arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them. And the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? And one of those standing there said, Can anyone become a prophet, no matter who his father is? So that is the origin of the saying, Is even Saul a prophet? When Saul had finished prophesying, he went up to the place of worship. Where have you been? Saul's uncle asked him, and his servant. We were looking for the donkeys, Saul replied, but we couldn't find them, so we went to Samuel to ask him where they were. Oh? And what did he say? His uncle asked. He told us that the donkeys had already been found, Saul replied, but Saul didn't tell his uncle what Samuel said about the kingdom. Okay, so pause there. Did everything happen the way that Samuel predicted? Why do you think Saul left out the part about the kingdom when he was telling his uncle everything that had happened? The next section is Saul is acclaimed king. Verse 17 Later, Samuel called all the people of Israel to meet before the Lord at Mizpah, and he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has declared. I brought you from Egypt. And rescued you from the Egyptians and from all the nations that were oppressing you. But though I have rescued you from your misery and distress, you have rejected your God today, and have said, No, we want a king instead. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of Matrites was chosen. And finally Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, Where is he? And the Lord replied, He is hidden among the baggage. So they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Then Samuel said to all the people, This is the man the Lord has chosen as your king, No one in all Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people what the rights and duties of a king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people home again. When Samuel returned to his home at Gibeah, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But there were some scoundrels who complained, How can this man save us? and they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts, but Saul ignored them. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the people of Gad and Reuben, who lived east of the Jordan River. He gouged out the right eye of each of the Israelites living there, and he didn't allow anyone to come and rescue them. In fact, of all the Israelites east of the Jordan, there wasn't a single one whose right eye Nahash had not gouged out. But there were seven thousand men who had escaped from the Ammonites, and they had settled in Jabesh Gilead. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 10. When they called out for Saul, why do you think he was hiding among the baggage?
1: And then Saul is anointed as king. And how do you think Israel feels at this moment? How do you think Samuel feels? How do you think Saul feels? And then what do you make of the end of this chapter
0: where they have the scoundrels coming and then they tell that story about Nahash gouging out people's eyes? Why do you think that's included right here at the end? Okay, now we can start. First Samuel eleven, Saul saves Jabesh Gilead from destruction, or another title is Saul defeats the Ammonites. First Samuel eleven, verse one. About a month later, King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh Gilead, but all the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. Make a treaty with us, and we will be your servants. They pleaded. All right, Nahash said but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel, replied the elders of Jabesh. If no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. Okay, so pause there. Does the ending of chapter 10 make a little more sense now? And then what do you think of the deal that the elders of Jabesh made with King Nahash? How do you think this will turn out for them? Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen, and when he returned to town, he asked, What's the matter? Why is everyone crying? so they told him about the message from Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. He took two oxen and cut them into pieces and sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger, and all of them came out together as one. When Saul mobilized them at Bezek. He found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So Saul sent the messengers back to Jabesh Gilead to say, We will rescue you by noontime tomorrow. There was great joy throughout the town when that message arrived. The men of Jabesh then told their enemies, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you can do to us whatever you wish. But before dawn the next morning, Saul arrived. Having divided his armies into three detachments, he launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites and slaughtered them the whole morning. The remnant of their army was so badly scattered that no two of them were left together. Then the people exclaimed to Samuel, Now where are those men who said, Why should Saul rule over us? Bring them here, and we will kill them. But Saul replied, No one will be executed today. For today the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us all go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord and Saul, and all the Israelites were filled with joy. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 11. What do you think of Saul and his actions in this chapter?
1: How did God rescue the Israelites here? And then once
0: they were rescued, why does it say that they had to renew the kingdom? Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel 12. And this chapter is called Samuel's Farewell Address to Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then Samuel addressed all Israel, I have done as you asked, and given you a king. Your king is now your leader. I stand here before you, an old, gray-haired man, and my sons serve you. I have served as your leader from the time I was a boy to this very day. Now testify against me in the presence of the Lord and before his appointed one, whose ox or donkey have I stolen? Have I ever cheated any of you? Have I ever oppressed you? Have I ever taken a bribe and perverted justice? Tell me, and I will make right what I have done wrong. No, they replied, you have never cheated or oppressed us, and you have never taken even a single bribe. The Lord and his anointed one are my witness today, Samuel declared, that my hands are clean. Yes, he is a witness, they replied. It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, Samuel continued. He brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt. Now stand here quietly before the Lord as I remind you of all the great things the Lord has done for you and your ancestors. When the Israelites were in Egypt and cried out to the Lord, He sent Moses and Aaron to rescue them from Egypt and to bring them into this land. But the people soon forgot about the Lord their God, so he handed them over to Sisera, the commander of Hazor's army, and also to the Philistines and to the king of Moab who fought against them. Then they cried to the Lord again and confessed, We have sinned by turning away from the Lord and worshipping the images of Baal and Ashtoreth. But we will worship you and you alone if you will rescue us from our enemies. Then the Lord sent Gideon, Bidon, Jephthah, and Samuel to save you, and you lived in safety. But when you were afraid of Nahash, the king of Ammon, you came to me and said that you wanted a king to reign over you, even though the Lord your God was already your king. All right, here is the king you have chosen. You asked for him, and the Lord has granted your request. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. But if you rebel against the Lord's commands and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors. Now stand here and see the great thing the Lord is about to do. You know that it does not rain this time of year during the wheat harvest. I will ask the Lord to send thunder and rain today. Then you will realize how wicked you have been in asking the Lord for a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people were terrified of the Lord and of Samuel. Pray to the Lord your God for us, or we will die, they all said to Samuel. For now We have added to our sins by asking for a king. Don't be afraid, Samuel reassured them. You have certainly done wrong. But make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart, and don't turn your back on Him. Don't go back to worshiping the worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. The Lord will not abandon His people, because that would dishonor His great name for it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you, and I will continue to teach you what is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve him. Think of all the wonderful things he has done for you. But if you continue to sin, you and your king will be swept away. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 12. Why do you think that Samuel starts his speech by asking the Israelites if he's done anything wrong or done anything to harm them? And then why do you think he sort of summarizes this history they've had in asking for a king? Did the Israelites realize that they had sinned by asking for a king? And how had they done wrong? Why did God send that thunder and rain? What was he communicating to the Israelites? After the rain and the thunder, Samuel tells the Israelites a few things. What does he tell them? What does he warn them of and what does he tell them to do so that they can stay true to God? How do you think the Israelites will react? Do you think that they're going to stay true to God or continue worshiping idols? When Saul becomes king and starts ruling over the Israelites, how do you think life is going to be for them? What do you think is going to happen And how do you think the Israelites are going to react? Why is Samuel giving a farewell address? What leadership role is he stepping down from so that Saul can take over as king? Is Samuel dying or is he just changing roles? And is he still going to be a part of the Israelite community? What's going on here in this situation? Okay, now we can start a new section of 1 Samuel, which is called Rejection of Saul's Kingship. This will last from chapters 13 to 16, and we will start here with chapter 13, which is called Samuel Rebukes Saul for His Disobedience. Chapter 13, verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son Jonathan to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines, so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up in revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba, and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, so pause there. Do you think that this is... A good thing for the Israelites or a bad thing for the Israelites? We know that their enemies are the Philistines, and Saul has destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba. And then it says that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So, do you think this situation is a positive thing for the Israelites or a negative thing? How do you think the Israelites are going to react to this news? Into this situation. And what are we learning here about Saul as king? Verse 5. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of beth The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Okay, so pause there. Why was
1: Saul waiting for Samuel? And then in verse 9, it says that Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Did he do something wrong by doing this? Why would he need Samuel to sacrifice this burnt offering? Again, what are we learning about Saul in this instance? Do you think Samuel is going to show up, and how do you think he's going to react to this situation?
0: Verse 10 Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, What is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish! Samuel exclaimed, "'You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's
1: command.'" Okay, so pause there. What is Samuel's reaction? Why do you think Samuel is so angry? What did Saul do? What sin did Saul commit in this moment? Samuel
0: says in verse 13 that Saul had not kept the command the Lord had given him. So, what command? has Saul broken. And is it just this instance that it happened or do you think Saul has done other things to break God's commands? And then we have this prophecy that Samuel makes that Saul's kingdom has to end and that the Lord has already sought out someone, a man after God's own heart, he says. Who do you think they're talking about? Do you think this is someone we're going to meet soon? Do you think it's another Israelite? Do you think it's going to be a new king? Who is this mystery person that Samuel is talking about? How long do you think it'll be before Saul's kingship ends and this new king begins his reign? Verse 15, Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. When Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only six hundred were left. Saul and Jonathan and the troops with them were staying at Geba in the land of Benjamin. The Philistines set up their camp at Michmash. Three raiding parties soon left the camp of the Philistines. One went northward toward Aphra in the land of Shul. Another went west to Beth-Horon, and the third moved toward the border above the valley of Zeboim, near the wilderness. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them, for fear they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, picks, axes, or sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith. The charges were as follows a quarter of an ounce of silver for sharpening a plowshare or a pick, and an eighth of an ounce for sharpening an axe or making the point of an ox goad. So on the day of the battle, none of the people of Israel had a sword or spear except for Saul and Jonathan. The pass at McMosh had, meanwhile, been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. Okay, so pause there. What does that mean for the community of Israel right there at the end? Are they in any position to go full force into battle? Or are they weakened right now? Do they have strong numbers or low numbers? Do they have strong weapons or weak weapons? What's going on with them right now?
1: And then why do you think that they're in the position they are in?
0: Okay, so now we can start chapter 14. And I'm going to warn you, this is a bit of a long chapter. It's going to describe the battle. So there might not be as much pausing in between. So it might be a good time just to listen and reflect on what's going on as we read through the story of this battle. So First Samuel 14 is called Saul and Jonathan fight the Philistines. Verse 1. One day, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his six hundred men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah, around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest, who was wearing the ephod, the priestly vest. Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord who had served at Shiloh. No one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Senna. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. Let's go to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer. "'Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. "'He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few.' "'Do what you think is best,' the armor-bearer replied. "'I am with you completely, whatever you decide.' "'All right, then,' Jonathan told him. "'We will cross over and let them see us. "'If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, "'then we'll stop and not go up to them. "'But if they say, come on up and fight,' then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. Okay, so pause
1: there. What do you think of Jonathan's plan? Is Jonathan putting God first in this plan?
0: How does Jonathan's plan in leadership differ from what we've seen Saul do in leadership, or is it similar to how Saul leads? Verse 11, when the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, climb right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. Okay, so pause there. Did Jonathan's plan work? Are you surprised that they were still able to begin this battle and defeat some of the Philistines, even though they had such low numbers and such weakened weapons previously at the end of the last
1: chapter. Do we see evidence here that God is on their side?
0: Verse 16. Saul's lookouts in Gibeah of Benjamin saw a strange sight, The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. "'Call the roll and find out who's missing,' Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor-bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, "'Bring the ephod here!' For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, "'Never mind, let's get going.' Then Saul and all his men rushed out to the battle and found the Philistines killing each other. There was terrible confusion everywhere. Even the Hebrews, who had previously gone over to the Philistine army, revolted and joined in with Saul, Jonathan, and the rest of the Israelites. Likewise, the men of Israel who were hiding in the hill country of Ephraim joined the chase when they saw the Philistines running away. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle continued to rage even beyond beth Aven. So pause there. What do you think Saul was thinking when he found out what was going on? What do you think was going through his mind? Why do you think God gave them this victory? Why do you think he interceded and allowed them to defeat the Philistines? Verse 24. Now the
1: men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day,
0: because Saul had placed them under an oath, saying, Let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening, before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey, because they all feared the oath they had taken. But Jonathan had not heard his father's command, and he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb and ate the honey. After he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. But one of the men saw him and said, Your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That is why everyone is weary and faint. My father has made trouble for us all, "'Jonathan exclaimed. "'A command like that only hurts us. "'See how refreshed I am now that I have eaten this little bit of honey? "'If the men had been allowed to eat freely from the food they found among our enemies, "'think how many more Philistines we could have killed.' "'They chased and killed the Philistines all day, "'from McMosh to Aijalon, growing more and more faint. "'That evening they rushed for the battle plunder "'and butchered the sheep, goats, cattle, and calves,' they ate them without draining the blood. Someone reported to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that still has blood in it. That is very wrong, Saul said. Find a large stone and roll it over there. Then go out among the troops and tell them, bring the cattle, sheep, and goats here to me. Kill them here and drain the blood before you eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. So that night all the troops brought their animals and slaughtered them there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first of the altars he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. His men replied, We'll do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, Let's ask God first. Okay, so pause there. What else are we learning about Saul in this section. What trouble did he cause the Israelites by making them take that vow? And then why did the Israelites start eating animals that were unclean, that had not had their blood drained?
1: Was that a sign of Saul's poor leadership? cause them to fall into this sin? And then at the end of that section,
0: we have Saul saying, let's run into battle all night long. And then what does the priest
1: have to remind Saul of? What does that tell us about who Saul is and his leadership?
0: Verse 37, so Saul asked God, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. Then Saul said to the leaders, Something's wrong. I want all my army commanders to come here. We must find out what sin was committed today. I vow by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die, even if it is my own son, Jonathan. But no one would tell him what the trouble was. Then Saul said, Jonathan and I will stand over here, and all of you stand over there. And the people responded to Saul, whatever you think is best. Then Saul prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, please show us who is guilty and who is innocent. Then they cast sacred lots, and Jonathan and Saul were chosen as the guilty ones, and the people were declared innocent. Then Saul said, Now cast lots again and choose between me and Jonathan. And Jonathan was shown to be the guilty one. Tell me what you have done, Saul demanded Jonathan. I tasted a little honey. Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan, Saul said. You must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from it. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched for God helped him do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul called back the army from chasing the Philistines, and the Philistines returned home. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Saul was so quick to want to punish even his son in this way? What does it tell us about Jonathan's character that as soon as his father says, What did you do? He immediately admits what his sin was. Why do you think the Israelites were able to convince Saul to
1: spare Jonathan's life? Do you think that was the right decision?
0: What are the main differences you notice in the character of Saul versus the character of Jonathan? Verse 47. Now when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, he fought against his enemies in every direction, against Moab, Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds and conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. Saul's sons included Jonathan, ish and mal He also had two daughters, Mirab, who was older, and Michael. Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahamaaz. The commander of Saul's army was Abner, the son of Saul's uncle Nair. Saul's father, Kish, and Abner's father, Nir, were both sons of Abiel. The Israelites fought constantly with the Philistines throughout Saul's lifetime, So whenever Saul observed a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted him into his army. So pause there at the end of chapter 14. What was the hallmark of Saul's rule over Israel? It says that they did something constantly. What was that thing that they did constantly while Saul was ruling? And what does that tell us about Saul? And what insight does that give us into the lives of the Israelites at that time? Okay, so let's start the final chapter of today's episode. And this chapter is chapter 15, and it's called, The Lord Rejects Saul as King. So let's start 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. One day, Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So Saul mobilized his army at Telium. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his armies went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites: Move away from where the Amalekites live, or you will die with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agog, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agog's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Okay, so pause there. Why did God tell Saul to attack and destroy the Amalekites?
1: Did Saul follow the Lord's instructions? How do you think God is going to react to Saul's handling of this situation?
0: Okay, the next section is... The Lord Rejects Saul. So we can start back with 1 Samuel 15 verse 10. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Okay, so pause there. What does that tell us about Saul's character? Verse 13. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader? Of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agog, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Okay, so pause there. What was Samuel trying to tell Saul? And what was Saul's response?
1: Does Saul have an understanding of what he's done wrong? Why do you think Saul believes he's done nothing wrong? What do you think Samuel's response is going to be? Verse 22.
0: But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness, as bad as worshiping idols. So, because you have rejected the command of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Okay, so pause there. Why is God rejecting Saul as king? Do
1: you think this is the right decision? How do you think Saul is going to respond to this? Do you think
0: Saul will receive a second chance, or is this it for him as king? Okay, the next section is Saul pleads for forgiveness. Verse 24. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned, I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else one who is better than you and he who is the glory of Israel will not lie nor will he change his mind for he is not human that he should change his mind then Saul pleaded again i know i have sinned but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before israel by coming back with me so that i may worship the lord your god so samuel finally agreed and went back with him and saul worshiped the Lord. Okay, so pause there. What was the final decision? Was Saul allowed to remain king, or was he stripped of his title? Did Saul ever have a full understanding of what he'd done wrong? Did he ever admit his wrongdoing, and did he ever ask for forgiveness? And it says. In one of the verses, verse 28, that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, you meaning Saul, and given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Do you know who Samuel is talking about here? And then what did we learn about God in verse 29? It says, he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. What does that tell us about God? we learn something new about him? Does that help you understand God a little bit better? The last section is Samuel executes King Agog, verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring King Agog back to me. Agog arrived full of hope, for he thought, Surely the worst is over, and I have been spared. But Samuel said, As your sword has killed the sons of many mothers, Now your mother will be childless. And Samuel cut agog to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went home to Ramah, and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 15. Why do you think it says that Samuel
1: mourned for Saul, what was he mourning, and what do you think his feelings were toward Saul? How
0: do you think Saul felt after he was stripped of his title as king?
1: And then why does it say that the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel? Do you remember why God made Saul king in the first place? What do you think is in store for the community of Israel now?
0: We know there's going to be a new king, and we will find out who that new king will be next time. But do you have any ideas on who that might be and what's in store for the community of Israel? And the last question I want to ask is, how and in what ways have you seen God working throughout Israel in 1 Samuel so far? How has his hand been upon everything that's happened? Okay, I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode, and I do want to apologize for how long it's been since I've uploaded. I started a new job this school year. I work in education. And My new job is a lot more demanding than my previous job was, and so finding the balance of being able to record after work and balance that with my new job and some of the new roles I've taken on has been a little difficult, but I am still committed, and I still see everyone's emails, and I'm trying my best to keep up with everything, and I just thank you all for your patience and support during this time. I hope that it is still a positive and helpful resource that brings you closer
1: to God. So I thank you all so much for listening and supporting, and I will talk to you in the next one.